Well, please make sure you have uh, Revelation chapter 2 open in front of you. Um, just last week, we heard that a whole bunch of Christian leaders in, I'll say, Asia uh, were arrested in a surprising new crackdown uh, right across the nation. Most uh, commentators had been saying things were getting better in this region. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was there a few years ago, as some of you will remember, uh, teaching at a pastor's conference, uh, all of the leaders there said things were getting better. They were feeling pretty chipper about the direction. Sure, there have been many decades of oppression, but uh, they thought it was getting better. And yet I was struck when I was there by the way they lived like things weren't getting better. The very strict precautions they took at every turn. Uh, I was never allowed out on the streets, just had to go from venue to van, venue to van. Uh, they would only meet in uh, closed shops after hours or out in barns uh, in the countryside. And when they communicated with each other by email or text, they would do so in a kind of code. Um, they just lived in a state of preparedness, it seemed. Uh, they were all pretty confident things were getting better, but they lived like it could change at any moment at all. Uh, in fact, the man in the top right there uh, is just the sort of man that this new crackdown is going to hit hard. He is the leader of, I kid you not, more than one million uh, Christians across this region. He's like the Uber Archbishop, as it were. Um, he'd been in prison three times by the time I'd met him. It was, he just got it, sort of expected it. Uh, I bet right now he is thinking hard about how to help his people not compromise. Because when the pressure is on, your first instinct is to try and reduce the dissonance between what you believe and what your nation wants you to believe by changing what you believe. That's the way we cope. And you know, in this part of the world, there's a very simple path to having recognition. Uh, any church in this region can become a registered church. And you know, all you need to do, really simple, just a few tweaks here and there, you just have to um, allow that your pastor is a government appointee. You have to promise to promote nationalist values you have to promise not to teach the book of Revelation, I kid you not, uh, drop the doctrine of the second coming, and never evangelize or teach under 18-year-olds in your own midst. No big deal. Do all of that and you can be a registered church. Now, it makes our pressures feel puny, right? The kind of pressure we feel for being Christians. And yet, the temptation is the same to adjust what we believe, to reduce that dissonance between our beliefs and the world's beliefs by changing what we believe. And it's to precisely this setting, whether modern Asia, modern Australia, or in the ancient world, that the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John, who's been exiled by the Romans out onto the island of Patmos, to the seven major churches of what they called Asia, what we call Turkey, who were feeling the pressure of what seems to be a pretty severe Roman crackdown on Christianity toward the end 
of the first century. And John writes this book of Revelation to comfort those who are fearful and to challenge those who are tempted to adjust the faith. And as he writes, he writes like these Asian pastors in a kind of code. And one of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand that it is deliberate code. And the nuttiness that goes with this book around the world in Christian history is associated with not reading the code, with reading it on the surface and not seeing the point. But it is well known that John is using a standard literary genre called apocalyptic, a Jewish style used in anxious times to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. And understanding the code is the key to getting the point. As complex as the apocalyptic genre may seem, the point of the book of Revelation is actually crystal clear. You could summarize the whole book of Revelation in two sentences. There may be many other ways to put it, but I put it like this. If the crucified Jesus is the risen, eternal Lord, only his kingdom will remain. So, staying true to his ways, even to the point of death, is true victory. So, whatever rabbit hole I take you down in interpreting this difficult book, please just anchor yourself with this. That's really what this whole book is about. Well, uh, last week we studied the first of two mini letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We looked at the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Smyrnans. Uh, now we're going to look at two further letters, the one to Pergamum and the one to Thyatira. These are seven mini letters within the broader book of Revelation that help us to understand how to read it, how to get in a frame of mind to read the rest of this amazing book. And I want to move forward tonight in four simple steps that have no subpoints whatsoever. I want to talk about the rationale for these letters, which is really clear. Uh, Jesus' compliment about the faithfulness of these congregations, the warning he issues about compromise, and fourthly, the verdict he issues. Let's take them in order. The rationale is clear in the way all seven letters open with a reminder of Jesus' glory and close with a call to be faithful through to the end. Okay? And uh, this is true of the letters to Pergamon and Thyatira. So, look at the letter to Pergamon. It opens in verse 12 with a statement, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The glory of Jesus. And it closes verse 17 with these words. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Thyatira, the letter to Thyatira, opens in a similar way. Verse 18, it says this about Jesus. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, etc. And closes in verse 26 with the statement, To the one who is victorious, who does my will to the end... I will give authority over the nations. This pattern appears in all seven letters, and it's kind of logical. 
It's saying if Jesus is who he says he is, it's worth hanging in there to the end. If he's not, it's not. But if he is this glorious one, it's worth it. Come what may. So if he bears the ultimate double-edged sword, verse 12, the deadliest weapon of close combat in the Roman army, his path is going to be the path to victory. It makes sense. If he is the true son of God, verse 18, which was, by the way, a key title of the Roman emperor, Emperors love to call themselves son of God. But if Jesus is the son of God, staying true to him will mean, verse 26, we share in his authority over the nations. And here's one of the keys to reading the book of Revelation. There's tons of militaristic imagery and language that really upsets modern Christians, right? But the thing is, it's employed in a completely contrary way, in an almost subversive way. Because the sharp double-edged sword that Jesus says he has isn't an actual sword. Jesus didn't suddenly stop being the the turn-the-other-cheek guy and pick up a sword to kill people. No, no. The sword we were already introduced to in chapter 1 comes out of his mouth, which is the symbol of his word. It's his word that is the weapon. And being victorious, that victory language that's normally used by the Romans for conquering people, is throughout the book of Revelation, as we saw last week, consistently used to talk about suffering for Christ through to the end. Suffering is victory. And it seems what the book of Revelation is doing is using the language of empire against the empire. It's pinching it and turning it on its head. As if to say, in the end, the true Lord isn't that all-conquering emperor in Rome. It's the guy who was crucified in Jerusalem recently. He's the Lord. And the real victors are not those who stay true to the imperial propaganda. It's those who take up their cross and follow the crucified one and his word. That's the rationale. And for the most part, the Christians of Pergamon and Thyatira are faithful to this vision. And Jesus says so. The commendation of Thyatira is pretty straightforward. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Wow, sounds like the ideal church. Love, faith, service, perseverance, doing even more now than before. I mean, you could hardly imagine there was anything wrong with such a church. The commendation of the Pergamum church is a little more complicated. Verse 13, I know where you live. When that's read out, it sounds like an assassin. (laughs) I know where you live. so So many movies have that line. But this is a good thing. It's Jesus saying, I know how hard it is where you are, right? Because look what he says. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Hmm. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. In Revelation, Satan and the devil almost always refer to what? Rome. Rome is the devil. Rome is Satan. That's part of the code. So in what sense does the devil, does Satan have his throne in Pergamum? 
Excellent question. And most scholars reckon it's because Pergamon was the first city in all of Asia to build a temple to the emperor in 27 BC. And right up to the time when this letter was written, they had a consistent what's called imperial cult where you would actually worship the statue of the emperor as a divine being. This is not just a place where you said prayers like for Malcolm Turnbull. We, we pray for the leader. Uh-uh. This is praying to the emperor, praising the emperor and actually uh, pouring out wine offerings to the emperor, just like you would to one of the gods of the Greek pantheon, the imperial cult. And sadly, some Christian leader named Antipas, verse 13 says, had recently run foul of the imperial cult, presumably refused to bow down to the emperor, and was executed in public very recently, which is why it's mentioned there. We have a disturbing parallel to all this, which I've quoted in the last two sermons, The letter from Governor Pliny, a pagan Roman governor, 10 to 15 years after the book of Revelation, he was the governor of the region just north of where uh, all these letters were written. And here's what he says about the imperial cult. He's writing to Emperor Trajan, and he says this. I dismissed any who denied that they were Christians when they had repeated after me a formula calling upon our gods... And made offerings of wine and incense to your statue, O Trajan. And furthermore, had reviled the name of Christ. None of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. You love that from a pagan. But if they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, and Pliny couldn't work out what was wrong with them. I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go punished. Well, through it all, verse 13 says, the church in Pergamon remained faithful even when they saw their own leader executed in the streets. They said, no, we're staying true. And Jesus basically says, well done, well done. Nevertheless, both letters have paragraphs beginning, nevertheless, So uh, it's important to look at the problems that are also in these two cities. And interestingly, the problems are the same, thirdly. Problem of compromise. Some in these fine churches were compromising with false teachers who are variously called by code names. Balaam, Balak, Jezebel... Nicolaitans. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Balaam is just an Old Testament character. I mean, the false teacher's name wasn't Balaam, all right? This is just straight out of Numbers 22, and Jesus expects you to know that, so you're meant to sort of get the code, right? Um, 
And Balaam was kind of a um, half-prophet, half-sorcerer who was employed by the king of Moab, Balak, to entice the Israelites to sexual immorality and idol worship. And if you read Numbers uh, 22 to 24, you'll see it actually came off. But here it's just code for some pagan teacher in Pergamum who was teaching Christians to participate in pagan festivals. More about that in a moment. What about the Nicolaitans there in verse 15? Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, Most scholars think that the grammar here means that actually these are the same people. These are not another heretical group. It's the same group, but now they're being called Nicolaitans, which is either what they called themselves or it's a backhander from Jesus because the word Nicolaitans means Nike team, victory team, right? Which is either what they call themselves, we're the victorious Christians of Pergamon, or it's Jesus saying they think they're going to be victorious, but they're not. So that's Pergamon's false teacher. Well, what about verse 20? Here's um, the false teacher of Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Well, Jezebel is just straight out of the Old Testament again. One and two kings. She's the wife of Ahab. And she's a pagan, and she leads Israel to worship the Baals instead of the God of Israel, and she kills the prophets. And of course, Elijah, you may remember the great famous prophet, flees in fear out into the country to escape Jezebel. But here it's just code for some woman preacher in Thyatira. Now, let me make very clear the fact that she's a woman is not the issue. The New Testament is very comfortable with women prophets. So Acts 21, we're told about four women prophets in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told about women in the church who are prophets. Okay, So there's no problem with her just being a woman prophet. The problem is she taught falsehood. So she's like a Jezebel, whatever her real name was. And the falsehood is the same. In both Thyatira and Pergamum, these false teachers are saying you can eat food sacrificed to idols and participate in Roman sexual immorality. So verse 14 makes it clear. Um, The teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they offered food sacrificed to idols committed sexual immorality. And then uh, over in um, verse uh, 20... Uh, Jezebel, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I know this food sacrificed to idols bit sounds a bit weird, but the thing you need to understand is that in the Roman world, um, animals were sacrificed in the temples, not to the emperors, but to the other gods, Asclepius and so on. Um, and then the meat of the, of the bull or whatever was sacrificed, um, most of it was sent to the marketplace and sold at Woolies. Okay, the Woolies of Thyatira sold blessed meat that had been offered to one of the gods, right? But some of the meat was eaten in restaurants attached to the temples in honor of the gods. These were civic banquets that were central to the functioning of a city. And you were meant to go to these banquets because the gods were the protectors of your city. So to go to a banquet in honor of the gods and eat the meat that had just been sacrificed uh, to the statue of the god was an important civic duty. 
And because the Roman gods didn't really care what you did with your body, these civic banquets frequently turned into orgies, drunken orgies. And the thing is, the Apostle Peter wrote to exactly the same region, Asia, some years before about the same problems. Here's 1 Peter 4, a letter we know was written to these same churches, but he's writing about 25, 30 years earlier. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised, the general public, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless living and they heap abuse on you. They heap abuse on you for not participating? Yeah. You can almost hear the logic of the false teachers. It would have gone like this. These civic banquets are important to the stability of our town. If we get a name for never turning up to the banquets for the gods, the protectors of our city, what are they going to think of us? They're going to think we're disloyal. They're going to think we're haters. (gasps) Don't want to be called a hater. And I know that sounds like a modern thing, but actually we know from Roman sources, this is exactly what Romans called Christians, haters. Because they didn't participate in these kind of rituals. Here's Tacitus, the greatest of ancient Rome's chroniclers, talking about Nero's persecution of Christians in the mid-60s in Rome. And look what he calls the Christians. Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Vast numbers were convicted for hatred of the human race. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs. It goes on, but I won't bother. This civic argument was very powerful. Don't be a hater. Participate. And actually, whoever this Jezebel woman was in Thyatira, she goes further than the civic argument. Um, In verse 24, we learn that she called her teaching deep secrets. Look what it says. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned, here it is, Satan's so-called deep secrets. She called what she taught deep secrets. Going deeper with Jesus. Jesus calls it Satan's deep secrets. Why? Because it's blending Roman religion with the truth of the gospel and calling it going deeper with Jesus. But Jesus won't stand for it. The verdict is dramatic. The language is symbolic, yes, verse 21 to 23, but we're meant to feel the force of it. Verse 21. I have given her, Jezebel, time to repent of her immorality. I think this probably means the Apostle John has written to her. Maybe she started out as a colleague. But now she's turned and John is writing to her, calling her to repent. 
She's had her time, but she won't. She is unwilling. Verse 22, and look what Jesus says. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. And I will strike her children dead. Do you notice a parallelism to the imagery, by the way? Uh, She had led people into sexual immorality, so her judgment is described as a bed of suffering. And her collaborators are called what? Adulterers. And what happens to them? They suffer intensely, which I kid you not, is probably a reference to the image of a sexually transmitted disease, which is well known in the Roman world, right? And her children, i.e. the converts of this movement, are simply killed. It's imagery, but we've got to feel the force of it. The verdict for Pergamon is just as dramatic, but the imagery is quite different. Verse 16, go back to the letter to to Pergamon. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth that the letter opened with. Again, it's symbolic language. This is not a sword. It's nothing to do with violence. The sword is the word of God. The sword is the gospel. It just means these people living contrary to the gospel are going to run into the fact that the gospel is the universal truth. And one day the whole universe universe will conform to the truth. So everything that doesn't conform to the truth will be overturned. But again, the militaristic language is used to describe that. And because that's the case, those who cling to the word of the truth, verse 17, get a very different verdict. They get to, verse 17, to the one who is victorious, that is suffering for this word right through to the end, I will give some hidden manna. You might go, what? I think it's like the metaphorical counterpart to the fact that they're eating food to idols. They get divine food. Remember, manna comes from the Old Testament. It's God's divine provision. Okay, But they also get a stone, which sort of weird scholars out. There's so much debate about this. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Uh, There are so many interpretations. I won't bother you with the details. The one I like best is uh, basically says... Um, that that it's a reference to a kind of ticket. And we do know that stones were used in this way with a code word written on a stone as a way of getting into a function. And so it may be uh, that this is a reference to uh, a ticket that you give to the doorman who's the only one who knows what name is meant to be on there and only if you have the name written on the stone do you get in. It's, of course, a picture of entering the kingdom. Uh, The letter to Thyatira puts the final verdict A different way, in verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. Again, victory is about suffering for the gospel all the way to the end. I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter. In other words, those who suffer to the end for the true Lord will reign with the true Lord. It's all just picture language for God's final verdict. Evil will be overthrown 
Everything will be brought into sync with the word of the gospel, the gospel of God's love in Jesus Christ. And if all of this is true, adjusting the faith to fit into our blip of culture, friends, is, to put it mildly, not wise. If this is true, if that's the verdict Jesus has pronounced, adjusting the faith to fit into this little blip, it's not wise. What would Jesus write to us? That's surely the question, yeah? Because, you know, even a church with love, faith, service, and perseverance, as verse 19 says, can still have pockets of deep compromise. Even Sydney Anglican churches can have pockets of compromise. I know it's hard. So we've got to think this through. In Jesus' letter to us, would he mention the way some of us have changed our view of marriage in a flash? I reckon we have just experienced one of the great tests of Christian faithfulness in recent years. And yes, I'm willing to admit that some Christians failed this test by just amping up their hatred and bigotry toward the gay community, yes. But others failed the test by overturning the clear teaching of Scripture about the meaning of marriage. Either because they just outright disagree with the Bible, or, more typically, they phrase it in terms of going deeper with Jesus. Yes, the Bible says this, but, you know, if you really go beneath the surface... I just leave that to your conscience. And today we might not have orgies as part of acceptable culture, right? I'm pretty sure, unless I'm really out of touch. But we more than make up for that with apps like Tinder, hookup apps. Three million Australians are on Tinder. We are the number one country in the world for Tinder. And then there's the 24-7, 365 days a year orgy called internet porn. And if we are accessing this stuff, you've got to wonder if Jesus might say to us what he says to Jezebel. Or what would Jesus say about money. I'm not talking about church finances. I'm not talking about the building project. For this sermon, put that out of your mind. But we know, we'll see next week, that Jesus castigates the church in Laodicea down the road for their wealth, opulence, for trusting in material comforts. And I wonder if the Lord might write to us here in Roseville 
and rebuke us for the way we do this. It's awesome North Shore Christian theology. It goes like this. Of course, the Lord really wants our hearts, not our money. Which is just a really cool way of saying, Jesus isn't having any of my money. Wish I had a dollar for every time I'd heard that theological rationale. I genuinely wonder if money is our food sacrificed to idols. It's the way we most consistently compromise our Christian faith to fit in. Surely, if Jesus doesn't have much access to the out column of our personal finances, he probably isn't much in our hearts. Of course, the problem with raising any of these particular examples is that I know there are people here going, phew, he didn't get to my issue. Or you're worse, thinking, I'm glad John said that because that person up there really needs it. When this obviously applies to all of us, the temptation for all Christians, whether in Asia or ancient Rome or here, in an increasingly negative world, is to try and reduce the dissonance we feel between our Christian faith and what the world believes by changing what we believe. But how we respond in those moments of dissonance really tells us what we believe. It's how we respond in the moments of dissonance tells us what we genuinely believe. Let me put it like this. If Christ is the eternal truth, let's just go with that thought experiment for a second. We should expect that his ways will contradict every human culture at some point. Because cultures are always in flux, sometimes coinciding with Christ, sometimes departing from him. So really the only thing we have to work out is, is he the eternal truth? It's lovely, of course, when Christ coincides with culture. I love it. Makes my job really easy, right? But you can't tell in those moments whether it's Christ you believe in or the world. It's the moments of dissonance and contradiction between our faith and the world that tell you what you really believe. That's when you know who you think holds the double-edged sword? The culture or Christ? Who is the Son of God? The Emperor or Jesus? So I close by saying what I know Jesus wants me to say tonight. Repent, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations.
So, Lord, we surrender to you and ask that you speak to us. Give us such clarity of thought, such soft hearts, that we cling to the word of Christ above culture. We ask it in the name of the crucified and risen, eternal Lord Jesus. Amen.